we've been in a series on the self and focusing in on how God wants to reveal himself to us by revealing ourselves to us. And I know, like, if you're like me, I've spent some time in church, and there is this sense where talking about the self can become sort of introspective. Like, it, it can become very self-serving. Like, oh, you know, this sounds like just parodying culture. Like, doesn't our world just kind of want to focus on yourself and make that the whole of reality? And it's interesting, I find, that when we focus on that kind of thinking, we miss out on the reality of what God is trying to do. See, Jesus' greatest commandment is to love God as you love, uh, to love God, first of all, excuse me, and then to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we often focus on the external elements of that. How do I love God? How do I love other people? But there's actually a third party in that, right? There's sort of an assumed party that you will love yourself. And so what we want to do is understand what does God see when he sees you? Because God has given you, as we'll see today, a mission and a vocation in the world to serve him and love him, to give yourself as a gift to the world. You were called to be poured out as Jesus was, but we can't do that until we have a sense of ourselves. Otherwise, we will blow past our limits and give well beyond what we have to give, or we will give out of somebody else's identity, what we're going to focus in on today, what's called the false self. We'll try to cultivate an identity and a reality on our own rather than, as Jesus shows us, receiving the gift, the, the blessing that God has for us. And so today we're going to dig in to this idea of what is the false self and how does it keep us from living out the very unique vision for our lives that Jesus has for you. Now, last week we talked about how God sees us and we asked a very poignant question. What does God see when he sees you? And if you didn't catch that teaching, I encourage you to hop on the podcast because God sees your beauty. He sees the glory with which he made you. You are made in the image of God. The one who created the world has imprinted his very image upon you. And he sees your brokenness. He sees that which is distorted within you, where we take those God-given desires, as Thomas Aquinas talks about, desires for infinity, and we turn them into desires for finite things. We try to satisfy infinite desires with very small little gods. And yet, God seeing all of this doesn't cause him to turn away. It doesn't cause him to look a different direction. No matter where we go, we find that God is meeting us there. His hand and his gaze are upon us. And today we want to delve into this idea a little bit more of what is our brokenness? What is our shadow? What shape does it take in our lives? Because if we deny parts of ourselves, we're denying parts of ourselves that God wants to liberate and to heal. Now, in Genesis 3, we see the archetype of the shadow. Genesis 3 is the, the, the chapter in the story. The beginning of the Bible is Genesis. Genesis 1 is all about creation. Genesis 2 is this intimate vision of the garden. What does it look like when God is ruling and reigning in shalom? And then Genesis 3 is where it all sort of unravels. And we look at Genesis 3, and we see the archetype of the shadow. 
we try to grasp part of our identity apart from God, to be in a sense like God. But being like God never delivers on what it promises, and thus we experience shame. Shame causes us to try to cover up, to use figs and leaves to hide our nakedness. We don't become, as we saw last week in Psalm 139, we don't become any less fully known to God, but we adopt the illusion of image management. We think that there are parts of our lives that we can cover from God and from other people, and we do it rather pathetically with figs and leaves trying to cover up. And God asks three questions in the garden. As creation, as his image is unraveling, as all that he has built with goodness and shalom is being shattered, he asks three questions. He asks, where are you? And again, does God have trouble finding little naked people running around his garden? Probably not. So probably the question has a deeper resonance. Where are you? God would walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. Where are you? The next question, who told you that you were naked? That wasn't a category before. Before, you just were. You didn't know. And now you have this new sense of yourself. And then the last question, what is this that you have done? Fundamental to the story of the garden the story that sort of sets the, the entire story in motion is the fracturing of narrative. Where coherence, order, and congruence reigned because all of it was ordered under the loving reign and peaceable reign of our good God. Now disorder, chaos, and fracture is now prevalent at every level. And the point of the creation narrative works itself out in a couple ways. First, there was joy and shalom because God was near. Genesis 3 describes God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, you know, for me, we have four little kids. One of the greatest gifts of my life in this season of our lives is walking into my house. And, you know, many days right now we're working at home. And so we have a, a little office in our garage, and I'll, you know, go back into the house to make some lunch or something. And it's just like the kids are inside, and they come, and they greet me. And it's just such a rich part of my day. Or they come up, they tell me what they're doing, they tell on their sister or their brother. You know, all this stuff is going on, but I get to be near to them. And I imagine God's heartache as he's used to walking through the garden in the cool of the day, being greeted by his creation. And in this moment, he's like, Oh, where are you? What's changed? Adam's first words, if you look in Genesis 2, if you read the Bible and you read it well, you'll notice that times where there is poetry being presented, there are these indentions in the text itself to tell you that it's poetry. It's a different way of speaking. It's calling you to a different pace. And the first words that humankind speaks in the whole Bible are song. Poetry, praise. Adam sees the woman and he says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He sings to God in praise for what he has made. And he sings in gratitude of just the existence of this woman. And now here in Genesis 3, as we're summarizing this story, Adam's words of praise turn to complaint against God. He says, this woman you gave me, gave me a piece of fruit to eat. 
His words of praise become complaint and accusation as opposed to praise and affirmation. The man and the woman were called to bear the image of God by tending the garden. Creation was always going somewhere. It was generative. It was dynamic. And God put his people in the garden to make something of it. And that's where that impulse, we talk about this often, but that impulse you feel to make something of this world, to explore, to experiment, to learn, to put order, to play, all of that is given by God. We were called to cultivate this world, not to, not to make it serve us, but to serve and glorify God through it. And in this moment, that call for cultivating beauty and thriving instead the man and the woman used their God-given call to, to fashion small little figs and leaves to try to hide their shame. And so we see there's this reversal that's happening here. And as we read this Genesis 3 text, just very briefly summarize it. God's three questions. First, he asks, where are you? That question is about relationship. Where are you in relation to me? Not where are you physically, but where are you? You thought that this, this fruit that I had forbidden you would make you like God. Where did that get you? The second question is about our own experience of our relationship with God and with others. God asked them, who told you that you were naked? You see, the man and the woman now experience a different relatedness to God. They think they have to hide their shame. And a different relatedness to one another. Things have changed. And God's final question is about the guilt of living out of the false self. He says, what is this that you have done? Now notice, there is a legitimate line that has been crossed. If you read Genesis 2, God says, I give you every tree in this garden from which to eat, all of them. But there's one tree that's not good for you. And you need to stay away from that one. And that is the very tree that, that has caused all that we've described thus far in Genesis 3. So a legitimate line has been crossed. A wrong has been committed. The man and the woman have sinned. And for many of us, like, whether you have this like, deep experiential knowledge of growing up in church or whether you just kind of have like a righteous gemstones, like kind of peripheral knowledge of, of church, like uh, Jesus saves sinners, and whether you, you're here for the first time and you don't know anything about uh, what it means to be a follower of the way of Jesus or you grew up in church, you probably have some sense that that is the message that's being proclaimed. And that is a beautiful and true and important thing for us to grasp. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think, we have this sense of God forgiving us and it's like, okay, now what do I do? We still experience ourselves as ourselves. We still feel kind of locked in what we were previously. We feel and we receive, yes, Jesus, I want that to be true of me, that you have forgiven my sins. But what do we do with our shame? What do we do with that stuff that we carry around? Though even cognitively we think and we know Jesus has forgiven me and we have to remind ourselves of that constantly. What do we do with the experience of being ourselves? What does God want to take and mold with that very, very life that you have tried to entrust to him? What is this that you have done? 
Alan Mann describes shame, and I think he, he describes it in a really poignant way. He says, shame is far better described as a phenomenon that excludes, that pollutes the individual and community. It is more appropriate to speak of cleansing and acceptance in order to be reconciled with the other, as well as with one's own self. While guilty people need forgiveness, shamed people need a sense that they can live as whole, coherent beings. They need to live a story that makes sense so that they themselves make sense. And this is what shame does. It unravels the congruence of the story. It unravels the story that we experience of ourselves. And shame is that distance, as we'll see today, between the false self that we try to hold on to and our lived experience, the results of that false self. Alan Mann says, the currency of our culture is shame. And it's a harder problem to deal with than guilt. If only because our stories of atonement, that which Jesus accomplished, are insufficiently nuanced to allow the self to recognize their own plight within the stories that surround Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This plight suffers the same relational consequences of sin, but only if sin is allowed to have its full semantic range. Then and only then will we begin to recognize that same is a condition that Jesus would not only empathize with, but indeed one that he climbed that much lamented hill to atone for. See, we have to understand that the, the phrasing in the scriptures that is used for sin is not just that you've broken an arbitrary law of God. It's not just that God set the rules and he set them in place in the beginning and you have broken some of the rules. No, the phrasing, the word picture that is used for sin is that of missing the mark. That there is a, a, a center that God has called us to that is fullness and goodness and truth. And that when we miss the mark, when we engage in sin, we, we fall short of that. Not simply because you have broken a rule, but because you have failed to live into the fullness all that God has for you. And everything that is false about us arises from our belief that our deepest happiness will come from living our way, not God's way. And although we may say we want to trust God and surrender to his will, deep down we doubt that God is really capable of securing our happiness. This is the false self, the self as narrated by us, not held in the gaze of God, not received as Jesus received his identity, as God pronounced over him, you are my son, my beloved, with you I am well pleased. David Benner writes of the false self, he says, at the core of the false self is a desire to preserve an image of ourself and a way of relating to the world. This is our personal style, how we think of ourselves, how we want others to see and to think of us. And just think about that for a moment. How do you want to be known in the world? How do you want people to see you? You want people to think you're smart, passionate about Jesus, funny, that you're, you don't care as much. You're a rebel without a cause. How do you want people to see you? And isn't it interesting that we have this whole mechanism to curate a whole identity for ourselves? Any of you on social media? I am, right? And I think about oftentimes I'll, I'll post a quote or something. It's like, what does this say about me? That I read books? That I love Jesus? That I want people to think of me in this way? Or that I like this particular style of music? 
It's an interesting thing, but we basically have been given a device to cultivate and curate how we want people to see us. And David Benner says that this is the core of the false self. Not that social media is bad in and of itself, but it's an interesting thing to look at. He says, I may have an image of myself as rational and careful. This will be at the core of my basic style. Alternately, my most prized trait might be my fitness, my intelligence, or my sense of humor. Or it could be that my investment is in an image of someone who is loving, artistic, unpredictable, creative, fashionable, absent-minded, serious, spiritual, or impulsive. Typically, the trait that we prize is in fact part of who we are, but the truth is always that it is a trait simply one among many. And we live a lie when we try to make it the sum of our being. Richard Rohr says the basic question we must ask is whether we are prepared to be other than the image of our false self. Are you prepared to live differently than the way that you want other people to see you? He says, if not, we will live in bondage to our false self. Now, again, we have, like, if you just take the iPhone as sort of a, a, a device, and, and ages are known kind of by their technology. Like we have the Bronze Age, right? We have the Industrial Revolution. You look at the 20th century, probably defined by something like uh, cars or flight. And in the 21st century, you have this technological revolution. You have a device that's been given to you that literally the whole construct, the whole idea of the device is that it is a completely subservient to you. It is a reflection of you. That by having a smartphone, you are literally an emperor of your own little domain. That thing does what you want, when you want it. It serves your needs. It answers all the questions. You can go to it for all that you need to know. Like It truly is the, the technology that defines our age. And think about how we are encouraged to use it. And one of the defining features of the phone is the, the front-facing camera. Right? Think of what a technological revolution that was. It's not just a mirror. It's a way that you can cultivate an image for the world to see. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've had it on many times and question whether I'm living truly in the end times. But I've been sitting in a coffee shop or somewhere watching life happen. I'm, I like to observe, I like to watch what people are doing. And you watch some young man or young woman holding their phone up high and taking like somewhere between 100 and 1,000 pictures, trying to get just the right one. So you got to get the right angle. The lighting's got to be good. Now, some of us, like myself, like if it's just not possible, you give up quickly. So I, I don't have this experience of like there's just not an angle that's going to happen that's going to be like, all right, beautiful. All right, we're, we're feeling good about that. But you watch this unfold. And then, then you have the next part of the, the equation, which is finding the right filter. Right. And now there's all these things, these Instagram things I don't even know about, which are like you can give yourself different eyes or my kids have figured out how to turn themselves into different creatures of sorts. Um, and, and, and so you sort of watch this experience. But we are self obsessed. And Charles Taylor called our society one of expressive individualism. We cultivate a sense of self that we narrate ourselves, and then we try to, to broadcast in some way that sense of self into the world. And this can be people projecting visions of success, of idealized versions of themselves, of, of strength. This can be visions of people projecting images that they are authorities. 
I don't know. I've, I've we've been having to do some stuff on YouTube for the church, and like at the bottom of that screen where they like suggest other videos, YouTube is a wild place. There's some strange stuff going on, and it's just like all these people that are projecting uh, sort of an air of authority that they you know know something about God or the Bible. There's just an interesting thing going on. But in our culture of expressive individualism, we find that people aren't set free by living, by narrating themselves. Rather, this culture creates a condition of bondage. And what psychologists and observers of the human soul and human condition alike have called shame. And we've already touched on this a little bit, but shame is not sin as we typically understand it. They're related, but they're not equivalent. And typically we are told that sin is breaking an arbitrary law of God. But again, this is not the full semantic rage. Mark Biddle describes sin saying, Our depiction of sin must include the failure for whatever reason and by whatever modality to manifest God's image. Sin is not the prideful effort to transcend humanity. It is also living the less than fully human life as exemplified and made possible in Jesus Christ. It's why we started this teaching series on the self with Jesus. Because Jesus lived in this mysterious way, fully God and fully man. And as fully man, he lived as the truest and fullest human being who has ever walked this earth. The freest person who has ever lived was Jesus of Nazareth. And so we start with his sense of self. And he is given that sense of self that he carried to us and empowered us to live in that way. Stephen Pattison says that chronic shame is best situated within the metaphorical ecology that pertains to defilement, pollution, and stain. Alan Mann says, shame in our context thrusts attention upon the self. While social setting and cultural expectations can cause shame, and, and again, Alan Mann is describing shame from a Western perspective. Many of us in this room are from cultures where shame is a much, a much more a part of the lived experience, maybe in your family. Uh, the West is slowly becoming an honor and shame culture again, primarily because of the Internet. But for, for many cultures that are not Western in their orientation, like if you're from uh, maybe a Korean family, there is a sense of honor and shame attached to your lived reality in your family. And so Alan Mann's talking about shame and honor from a sense of a Western orientation. And he says, he says, there's no need for an audience or the presence of others for people to feel shame. It is in so many ways an assessment of the self. What Alan Mann is describing here is our true longing for intimacy with others, but our felt need to preserve our false selves by keeping ourselves hidden. Again, you think about the picture in the garden. The, the, the original picture is that of full face-to-face -face relatedness to God and one another. And then when all of that breaks down, there's a sense that we have to hide part of ourselves. He goes on, he says, Our need for love and intimacy that brings a sense of self-worth turns against us and fuels the fires that lead to chronic shame. Thus, a vicious circle ensues. We long for intimacy, to have a deep sense of connectedness with ourselves and with others. However, the project of self-realization, the script that our culture gives us for understanding ourselves, ultimately pushes the other away and collapses in on ourselves, laying the seedbed for chronic shame to grow. Once mature, chronic shame stifles the self with doubts about the coherence of its very being. 
and fears that it will be exposed for what it truly is. An incoherent being who being ne neither trusts nor can be trusted to relate truthfully. David Benner tells us that we can locate our captivity to the false self in a couple of different areas, the places where shame is keeping us locked in. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a couple lenses to see maybe where you're keeping that sense of, of shame and false self kind of hidden and protected. And then we're going to look at Jesus and how he liberates us from our false selves. He says, okay, one of the first lenses you can begin to look at in your own life. And this first one hit really hard for me. If you're trying to say, okay, where am I trying to hold on to a piece of the false self? First one is defensiveness. Now, this one hit really hard for me because uh, a little over a week ago, my wife and I were out to dinner uh, on a date. And she said, you know, Ian, I've experienced you as being really defensive lately. And I said to her, I'm not defensive. Just self-defeating in many ways. But, you know, relating to the things that we were talking about, understanding that, and then, and then her saying that. You know, obviously, I don't want to project an image of defensiveness into the world. I want to project an image of strength and confidence. And always know what I'm doing. And she's saying, listen, you're being defensive. You're trying to, to cultivate an identity that you want others to experience you as that's not being experienced by others and especially by those closest to you. And I don't know if, it, if you've ever had this experience where the people who love you most are telling you something that is very difficult to hear. And I want to encourage you, not all criticism is completely valid, but often when it's offered by those who love us most deeply, there is a level of truth that we need to listen to. And so for us, those of us who might be parents in here, when our kids are saying, in, in the way that they're often able to relate these things, you know, Daddy, I, I don't feel like you're listening to me. Or, you know, just some of those ways that they, they're trying to communicate, I don't feel like you're here. We need to stop and say, what is that? For those of us who have roommates or, you know, uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses, this is a, often a place where our false self manifests itself as our own defensiveness. What are you trying to guard? What we find is that we live truthfully. We don't need to defend the truth of our lives. The truth defends us. And so oftentimes those comments by our loved ones are really an invitation to repentance, to listen, and to be loved more fully, to be given over to them more fully. So defensiveness is one of the first areas where we could begin to see where am I trying to live out of a sense of false self. Second, compulsion. Where do you go when things feel like they are hard? Oreos? No? That's just me. These behaviors are not inherently destructive, but oftentimes the way that we use them are quite destructive. Do you reach burnout levels of exhaustion and then just keep going? You see, we don't often think about this, but workaholism is a compulsion. It is an attempt to take the reins of the world and to say, all right, everything's out of control. I don't feel myself. I don't feel that there's any coherence to my life. Let me just work more. Do you try to numb your pain with social media? There's just this endless just well of dopamine hits that you can just find. And it's so much better, like if we're honest, in dealing with your own self. And sitting with your own quiet thoughts and pain, like, let's just look at other people's lives. Or let's, let's see what this BuzzFeed article has to say. Is it food? Is it alcohol? Is it pornography? Where do you go 
Again, the point is not the behavior itself. The point is what is leading you to this behavior. As we talked last week, what is the distorted desire that you're so far downstream from the God-given desire that you've, you've presented that desire in broken ways? So defensiveness and compulsion are good lenses into where are you trying to live out of a false self. Now, this would be a great talk and just a, a you know, how do you know yourself? How do you begin to live out of a sense of true self? You could sort of have this in any place but the beauty of the gospel of King Jesus is that he offers a better way than simply just knowing ourselves or being aware of ourselves. He offers us healing and freedom through his presence. And we want to look at a brief story that captures this so beautifully. Jesus came to liberate us from our false selves, to unravel shame in our lives and to turn it into beauty. Now, I think we see this most beautifully in the scene in John chapter 21. Now, if you... If you're not familiar with this scene, Peter famously has denied Jesus three times during the course of his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And so Peter thought that that was the end of the story. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. But because of the love of God that conquers the grave, that overcomes the world, Jesus gets up on that Easter morning and he climbs out of the grave. And he meets Peter in John chapter 20. And that's what's interesting about this story. In John 20, Jesus sees, or Peter sees Jesus risen. In John 20, Peter knows the truth of the story. But I think what we see here is that in John 20, Peter is still mired in his shame. He's still wrestling with it. And now, like, in some ways, like, you can almost see it be worse, like, it, Jesus, Peter's best friend, this one who loved him more than any other person, was, was like, Peter denied him, and then Jesus died. So, like, you could tell, like, that would be the end of a story. It'd be a tragic end to a story, but he wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. But now Jesus is alive again, and so Peter's like, I, I, I know Jesus has done this amazing thing. What does it mean for me to be in relatedness to him? And we're going to see how Jesus meets him in this place, this place of questioning here in John chapter 21. So it says in the story that Peter in John 21 goes back to fishing. So after he's seen all of these things, after he's seen literally Jesus raised from the dead, Peter goes back to the thing that he used to do before he started following Jesus. What we see here is Peter's compulsion. What does Peter do when things get hard? He goes fishing. That's the thing that he knows best. It says, just after daybreak, in verse 4 of John 21, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked. Interesting. Jumping into the water, putting on clothes. We'll get back to that. And he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, only a hundred yards off. 
Peter, to jump into the water, puts on clothes. Now, I don't know why he was fishing mostly naked. That's not in the text. But it's counterintuitive, right? Like, if you're going to go for a swim, you're usually trying to, to unburden yourself from layers. But Peter, in this scene, knows that it's Jesus. He's going to meet Jesus, and he puts on clothes. See, Peter is still trying to manage his image. John is being very, this is what John does. John just likes to throw these little sideways things into the story. He's being very careful with the details that he puts forth. And he's saying, Peter puts on clothes in order to meet Jesus. Peter's still trying to manage his image to project. He comes to Jesus clothed, but now he's sopping wet and weighed down, trying to cover his nakedness. But Jesus has something else for Peter. Verse 9. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised. Now, what's not often recognized in this story is that these men are all skilled fishermen. Before Jesus came along, this was their trade. This is what they did for a living. Like, if they're having nights where they're not catching any fish, they're having a rough go. These were not the type of men who came back from a night of fishing catching nothing. And yet, before a fresh word from Jesus, these men's nets are empty. You see, Peter, in going back to fishing, is trying to live out of his false self. Jesus, when he first met Peter, said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of people. Your old identity of fishing for fish will no longer serve you. And as Peter tries to go back to live out of the false self, he catches nothing. Our false identities will not serve us. They will not serve the world. They will not manifest God's presence in this place. Jesus is restoring Peter. And he's going to do it by asking him, Three questions. Sound familiar? Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he had asked him for a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you. And then he said to him, follow me. Jesus asked Peter three questions. Do you love me? Much like God in the garden asked three questions of the man and the woman. But this time it's the same question. Now Jesus is not 
asking the same question to be passive aggressive. Like, you know how we kind of do this sometimes? Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Well, I mean, you know, when you were denying me when I was being crucified, didn't seem like you loved me very much there. So I'll ask you again, do you love me? Like, this is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is asking these questions in a deeply purposeful manner. First, there's the fact that Jesus was denied three times by Peter. And Jesus is restoring Peter. And there's this beautiful symmetry there. Second, when Jesus meets Peter, it's over a charcoal fire. Now, the only other time that word for charcoal is used in the New Testament is around the fire where Peter denied Jesus during his arrest and crucifixion. The only other time. And so Jesus, genius and loving, hospitable God that he is, is meeting Peter right where he turned away, right in the depths of his shame. You know how strong our sensory memories are? Have you ever had a smell that just triggered, brought you back to some other place, some other time? Do you, what do you think the smell of charcoal would have triggered in Peter? Especially as he's meeting Jesus and really having a conversation with him for the first time. And Jesus meets Peter right there with all of that going on and says, that smell is now going to mean something far different for you. And each time Peter answers Jesus' question, Jesus gives him an imperative, a vocation, a call to serve. And you even notice the last time that Jesus asked the question, Lord, you know that I, you know everything. Like there is this sense of defensiveness, like, come on, Jesus, you know you know everything. You know that I love you. And each time, Jesus gives Peter an imperative, a vocation, a call to serve. We tend to think that we have to be specific in our confessions to God. That we have to tell him exactly what we did, exactly why we did it. But that's not what we see here. Jesus names the shame that Peter is experiencing without naming it at all. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, you know what you did. Now I want to hear you say it. Jesus simply invites Peter to a meal to a conversation. Relationship with Jesus is the place where our false selves unravel. Relationship face to face, knowing ourselves before God. And Peter undoes, or Jesus undoes Peter's shame, and he says, this is what you're to do in the world. Go and tend my lambs. Jesus gives Peter a renewed sense of, of coherence, a narrative that is congruent, and a call to move forward. You see, Ecclesia, we are not just people trying to manage our false selves and our shame. Jesus has given us a job to do. There is a world that needs tending. There is beauty to create. We have vocations and a call to live out of this sense of rest restoration that Jesus has offered to us. Jesus is demonstrating to Peter and to us is that our failures, our shame, our false self do not define us. And that in fact, Jesus will meet us at the place of our failure and will restore us to himself. Kurt Thompson, a uh, psychotherapist, psychologist, writes of watching local painter Makoto Fujimura paint. And uh, Makoto has a farm a couple miles from here. And his, his works are displayed kind of all over the region here. Just a Incredible artist. And Makoto's process is a long, drawn-out process. And he actually is quite involved with making the materials for his painting. Uh, he practices this ancient Japanese art called Nyonga. 
And in that, there's a lot of really uh, precious materials that go into the painting. And Makoto will often make the powders and the paints. And there's this crushing, this breaking of, of these really uh, precious materials that goes into it. And Mako is this master craftsman. And he, he talks about Mako by crushing and grinding into powder or breaking is, is, is doing that in order to bring forth beauty. He says the crushing and the breaking is never the point. The crushing and the breaking where Jesus meets us and he asks us, do you love me, is about bringing forth beauty. Kurt Thompson writes, to see the painting now, to see the end product, the end of all of it, in all of its splendor, while holding the memory of what it was in its early stages, along with the memory of Makoto's careful attention to each moment of creation, provides a vision for what Jesus was doing in his careful conversation with Peter. In inquiring, do you love me? We seek out where shame lurks for the purpose of healing. He says, once Peter's attention is turned away from his shame and toward Jesus, Jesus further directs it, saying, feed my sheep. In essence, I have work for you to do. I have new beauty for you to create and curate. There is beauty to be found everywhere, even in you. And we see beauty most fully through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus, the way that he meets us. If we were just left with the crucifixion, we'd see nothing but ugliness and brokenness. And yet Jesus on the third day gets up from the grave. He rises again and he meets us, each of us, just as he did. He meets Peter and he invites us to a meal. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And he asks us that same question, do you love me? And friends... In the face of this kind of love, in the face of this kind of, of being known, all we can say is yes. I want to invite you, if you receive the communion elements, you can take those into your hands. I want to invite you, uh, the worship team, to come on up. And I'm going to ask as we move into this time of just response and worship, Just to be honest with yourself in these moments, where, where do you feel ashamed? Where, where are you trying to hold on to a false sense of self? Where are you trying to live out of an identity that was not given to you by God? Where have you gone back to fishing, to something previous to your life with Jesus? When he's called you to be a fisher of people. You know what you see throughout Peter's life? is that this moment is not a one-off thing that happens. Paul later in Galatians will rebuke Peter because he's changing his behavior, who he eats with, depending on who's around. Peter has a lifelong fear of people that sometimes manifests itself in this incredible courage, like in Acts 2, when Peter is the first one to get up and to preach the reality of the resurrection to those gathered there. And at other times, Peter falls short. And you know what you find? is that Jesus sees all of it and never turns away. And so friends, I, 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 I want to say this to you so plainly. Where you feel locked in on yourself, where you feel like there is something in you, some sense of shame that you try to keep hidden from everybody else and from God, Jesus loves you. He died to overcome the world to meet you on a beach 
and to say, sit down, have a meal, be restored. There is work to do. There is beauty to create. And so over these next couple of moments, I just want to invite you. I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to be made manifest in our presence here today. And for you, just in moments of introspection, to be honest with God and just say, Lord, I've, I've been trying to just hold on to this. I've been trying to keep this locked in from others, from people I need to talk to, or from you. And just imagine yourself releasing that to him, sitting down to a meal, enjoying the meal, and just saying, yes, Lord. For others of you in here, there are those of you who think because of what you've done that God has nothing for you. That he has no purpose in life for you, just for you to exist and hold on. But God is saying to you, no matter what you've done, whether you've denied Jesus or lived your life completely for yourself, there is work to do to tend the sheep, to serve the world, to proclaim the beauty of the resurrection. So I'm just going to pray. And as we respond in song, we're going to just sit with those thoughts and then we'll come to the table as Jesus invites us to. Holy Spirit, come. God, we invite your presence here now. God, because only you can undo shame. Only you can undo the reality that we try to forge in our false selves, God. Our false selves will not serve us when you are there, but a fresh word from you. God, you're calling us to put down our nets on the other side, to stop working the way that we have, and to receive the reality of your resurrection, of your restoration. And so, Jesus, would you do it in this moment? God, would you set free people who have been locked in cycles of shame and brokenness and loneliness and invite us into your new creation world? Would you set people free in this moment? Would you change destinies? Not just in this room, but beyond, because you have called us with a vocation to create and curate beauty, to tend your sheep, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your beautiful word. We thank you for your son, the reality of the cross and the resurrection that stands against every narrative. You are good. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.